Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this episode on Monday, August 5th, 2019. And you've been spending your time reading, is that correct? Or... I've been reading and then working on tech issues for a friend's company. So I've I've uh, been pulling my hair out with technical details and then reading the new X-Men line of comics to ease me back into tranquility. And when you're talking about the new line, we're talking about House of X and, and you've managed to get your hands on issue number one. Is that correct or... Yeah, we've got uh, two, there's going to be two books that are going to come out side by side. The first one that came out is House mm -hmm. of X, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. And then just in the last week or so, Powers of Ten came out, which tells a story alongside of House of X. And as a matter of fact, at the end of uh, House of X, on like the last page, it says, over the next year, these are the books that are going to be coming out. This is the proper order to read them in. So it's House of X, Powers of Ten, number one, and then it switches to issue number two, and then you get a back-to-back -back three and four, and it's it's kind of jumbled up. So they've given you a roadmap because it's going to be a complex journey. Okay. And this relaunch of the X-Men by, by Marvel Comics has some pretty fascinating implications, at least as far as the Marvel Cinematic Universe is concerned, don't you think? It has the potential to, and that's, I think, what the, the main thrust of the conversation is going to be, is we're going to highlight what is so very radically different about this version of the X-Men. It's unlike any X-Men you've read to date. It is so radically different that it's very exciting to read the comic and have something fresh and new in that sense. However, if you were to gaze in the crystal ball, it may actually be able to predict what we're going to get out of the X-Men when we finally get to that path in the MCU. We'll get to that on the second half of today's show, but but now let, let's quickly take a look at some, some Marvel-related news. And I think it was back in the late winter, early spring of 2018, there are a lot of folks excited because Hasbro would put a toy out in the market called the Hulk Out Hulkbuster, which featured art on the cover of its box showing the Mark Ruffalo version of the Hulk smashing his way out of a Tony Stark's Hulkbuster version of his Iron Man outfit. And the thinking was, because this toy was coming to the marketplace, that we'd see a moment recreated in Avengers Infinity War. But then when that Russo Brothers movie finally arrived in theaters in late April of last year, there was no scene of, of Mark Ruffalo's Hulk busting out of the, the Tony Stark's Hulk-busting suit. And a lot of Marvel fans were like, well, well, what gives? And we finally have an answer on the audio commentary for Avengers Endgame. Screenwriter Stephen McFeely revealed that this scene, the, the Hulk-busting thing, was originally supposed to happen as part of Infinity Wars, and here's a direct quote from McFeely, and Hulk rips out of the Iron Man armor and then beats the crap out of Cull Obsidian and destroys him, and for those of you who don't remember, Cull Obsidian was the most physically powerful of Thanos' children. We saw him in the first scene on with Thor and, and Hulk, right, at the start of uh, Infinity Wars? Yeah, he was basically a Hulk-sized gray creature, whereas everybody else was rather thin and used magical abilities. He was the only one that really had bulk outside of Thanos. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So it may it would make sense that these two characters would then go head to head in the, the Battle of Wakanda. After the Hulk's battle with Cull Obsidian, Natasha was supposed to have approached Bruce while he was still in Hulk form and done her whole, hey big guy, the sun's getting low thing. And at this moment in the movie, Bruce, while he was still in Hulk form, mind you, was supposed to have turned to the Black Widow and said in perfectly clear English, oh, Natasha, that's not, we don't need that now. And this was supposed to be the big surprise at Avengers Infinity War, the introduction of Professor Hulk. And quoting from what McFeely said as part of the Avengers Endgame commentary, while we were shooting Infinity Wars, we called this character Smart Hulk throughout the whole shoot. The whole arc of this character's story in Infinity Wars was that Banner and Hulk were not getting along. The Hulk wouldn't come out and, and help Bruce when he needed him. And then, in this character's hour of greatest need, Banner and Hulk made some sort of a compromise. And this is where Professor Hulk comes in. It was always their intention that Professor Hulk would make his debut in the middle of the Battle of Wakanda rather than Avengers Endgame. So what happened... They took the film in a kind of rough form and did some test screenings with it. Evidently, test audiences just loved Professor Hulk. But the problem was that the way the film was structured, immediately after the Battle of Wakanda, we have the blip. And half of everything in the universe turns to dust. And, and the problem was that you had this happy, funny moment in the middle of this brutal battle and then went into this really dark moment where half the Avengers turned to dust. It was tough for an audience to take. Tonally, it didn't sit well at all. I mean, it, it's just, yeah, you're facing doom and gloom and everyone's about to die. And then you have one heroic moment that you've been all been waiting for, the appearance of Smart Hulk. But it's surrounded by all of the glummest things in the MCU thus far. And totally, it just would stick out like a sore thumb. So it was a very wise decision to hold that reveal till you're trying to regather the Avengers in Endgame because... What a bright, surprising moment it was instead of getting Ruffalo, of getting Professor Hulk at that mm -hmm. moment there. Well, it was a lot of fun. Oh, no. So I'm glad that they went the way that they did with it. And I'm glad that the test screenings were able to point out, you know, we always get worried about how they, you know, may shoot something in the last couple of months before a movie's supposed to come out. And you go, ah, oh, the movie's in trouble. That's them taking their stuff out, showing it to a test audience and realizing that what may be an awesome moment just doesn't work as far as tone goes. And it works for the best in that situation. So I think this is another one of those examples where, A, they were covering up at the last minute, made a drastic last-minute game plan change, and it all worked out fine. When they do the thing where it shows Hulk running in the trailer for Infinity War at the Battle of Wakanda, then we get to the movie and we see its banner in a Hulk buster outfit. Does that bother you? Do you feel like you've been cheated or misled out of a moment? Because I'm happy that I don't get exactly what I was promised in the trailer. I get the tone of the movie. I get a general idea of, of what it's about. But as I'm enjoying the adventure, I'm not picking out what wasn't in the trailer. That doesn't happen till well after the movie is over. I kind of like that they're able to hide things in plain sight by giving us alternate trailers and subterfuge material, if you will, to keep the secrets. Let me float an alternate scenario for you. Maybe that was... The legitimate trailer. Maybe the run at the screen with all of the heroes oh, it probably was. was after a Hulk had beat up 
called Obsidian and gotten out of the suit. Now I want to go back and take a look. Because if you compare Hulk to Professor Hulk, Professor Hulk has far more of Mark Ruffalo's features. In fact, they made a point of, right. of incorporating the sort of salt and pepper hair that Mark Ruffalo has a little bit in the Hulk's hair. So now mm-hmm. I want to go back and see if, if that character actually has more of Mark Ruffalo to him than he does the traditional Hulk. The other thing, they made this call very late in the game. They had mm-hmm. already finished shooting Endgame, and so it, it wasn't really a situation where it's like, okay, bring Mark back. We're going to figure out a different way to do this. So first they had to sort of wallpaper over that hole in the original Infinity War. And then, I honestly, I think they just got dumb lucky with the way the diner scene had been written in that it, you know, in a weird right. sort of way, it worked as a perfectly serviceable, in fact, very entertaining introduction to Professor Hulk. Yeah, yeah. I just know that I've had a lot of friends who have commented about, hey, Marvel, why wasn't this scene from the trailer in the movie? Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. But I'm really on board with the idea of Marvel giving us trailers that are not 100% what's going to be in the movie. They may be scenes from with minor changes to, you know, hide bro Thor, as he's known. They did a good job of hiding that. I wouldn't want that revealed before the movie because of the surprise that you get when you're in the theater and the whole crowd sees Thor again for the first time and it's never been hinted at once in the in the ads. That's a great moment in the theater. That's why you go to a theater is for that communal experience of discovery together. So, yeah, I, I just it's one of those little side points of I'm okay with the trailers not matching up perfectly with what's actually in the film. It's supposedly at one point... Kevin Feige sat Mark Ruffalo down. Then they were talking about the idea, rather than doing a standalone Hulk movie, that wouldn't it be interesting over, say, three or four movies that they do a movie's worth of growth with the Hulk character? So if you think about a story that starts with Avenger Age of Ultron back in May of 2015 and then continues through Thor Ragnarok and then Infinity Wars and Endgame, and and so we're four years now. Now, before you carry mm. on with that, I got I got to call storyteller hogwash to that theory. Okay, because if you look at your list, you've got Avengers, uh, three Avengers movies on that list, and one mm-hmm. Thor movie on that list. Okay, so Avengers is an ensemble movie. I argue that each character, Iron Man, Thor, Black Widow, Hawkeye, they should all have some sort of character development as leads in those movies. And I think what happened here is that Feige, knowing that they're not going to let Universal make a movie and do whatever they want with Hulk, so they can't release a solo Hulk movie. So what are they going to do? They're going to turn to Mark Ruffalo and go, hey, man, guess what? You're really the kind of the star of the Avengers because this is going to carry your arc forward. And he doesn't say the words because we can't do it in a solo film, (laughs) right? But all of the Avengers... Tony went from the most selfish person of the Avengers to the most selfless, to the most giving, whereas Captain America was the most selfless. He gave up himself every time for the mission into the end of Endgame. He finally did something for himself. He finally made a selfish choice and we were happy for him. So my whole argument is 
if the list consists of all of the Avengers movie and a Thor movie, each and every character that we've been following for the last 10 years better have some serious growth throughout those movies. Otherwise, they failed at telling an Avengers story, not a solo Hulk movie with his buddies, right? That's all valid, but that actually brings me to my next point, where you're universal, and you did the original Ang Lee Hulk in 2003, and then you did your, your reboot with Ed Norton in 2008. And in both cases, very expensive movies underperformed at the box office. And so you're perfectly happy to let, you know, it's like, sure, take the Hulk, do what you want with him. And now you're at a point where Mark Ruffalo has been playing this version of the character since the original Avengers movie. And the Hulk now is is at a point where he can actually do dialogue which means doing exposition on a Hulk movie, which, in fact, they really struggled to come up with a story because, you know, half the time right. you've got this character that can't really do dialogue. So right. I, I just wonder from this side of the fence, if you were an executive at Universal and you know you have the rights to Hulk and you've got a Mark Ruffalo who's doing a bang-up job with this character, would you roll the dice a third time? You know, I'm almost would be tempted to say from the other side mm. of the fence that Feige should pull an 800-pound gorilla move on Universal, walk into their office, just kick in the door, be like, all right, now here's how it's going to be, see? We're going to do a Hulk movie, see? You're going to put it out, but we got control of the story, see? And I don't want no lip from none of you. Now you're going to take 25%, just 25%, that's it. You know, and then they're going to be like, okay, Mr. Feige, and they sign uh, just so we can get a cut of the Hulk. <laughs> I'm not going to say that's not wrong. Well, I mean, Marvel's just got so much clout that, and, and they've had so much success that they should really be able to walk into anybody's office and go, here's Slim, here's the boys with the bats, and there's mm -hmm. Feige. Talk. And, and he just goes, look, this is what we want. We're big enough that we can just tell you that that's how it's going to be, and you should just take it. I don't think that's good business. I just think that's the position that they could be in if they wanted to. Let's also be honest here. This is the new... Disney Fox behemoth that it's still finding its way. You know, just last week we had a bunch of layoffs and they're still sort of you know, trying to figure, I think the term they call is right sizing. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, that we were just talking about Thor Ragnarok because the fourth Thor film, it's just been revealed, is going to shoot next year at Fox Studios Australia, which, by the way, is one of the production facilities that Disney picked up as part of its $71.3 billion acquisition of 21st Century Fox. Pre-production on Thor Love and Thunder begins in March of next year at, at the studio in Sydney. And the interesting thing is this Taika Watiti movie has to wait till production of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is completed at Fox Studios Australia. Once they clear out of the sound stages, then here comes Thor Love and Thunder. And when Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed the Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act, that was back in May, Bob Iger, again, a CEO of Disney, said this law would make it difficult for the company to continue to do business in Georgia. And here's a direct quote of what Iger said at the time. Many people who work for us will not want to work in Georgia should this law go into effect. And we will have to heed their wishes. And it's hard for me, Aaron, not to look at Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings, and Thor, Love and Thunder, opting to shoot at Fox Studios Australia rather than Pinewood Studios Atlanta. 
12 out of the 22 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies was shot there. Well, I do think that the, it could be a double-edged issue where, yes, they may be trying to make a political statement on one side, but on the flip side of the very same coin is they have just acquired Fox. They have a whole bunch of new properties. They're doing this whole right-sizing, which I love the twist on that mm -hmm. name, from downsizing. But the thing is, they have a studio now in Australia, and they got to make money on it. You can't just let it sit there empty. So if there was nothing scheduled to be there, no other movie studio coming to put a movie in there in mm -hmm. production, then you either fill it yourself or you lose money on it, right? So it's like, A, we've got an empty studio just waiting to shoot something. We have many things on our slate. So let's go start shuffling stuff in that direction. Oh, and if it happens to give a middle finger to anyone in particular, if they take it as, an, as a middle finger, we will let them. I like your more... Benign take on this. So let, let, let's go with that. Oh, by the yeah. way, while we're talking about Marvel movies that will begin production, well, pre-production soon, let's talk about one, given that it is an, an October 2020 release date, should have started shooting yesterday, and that's Venom 2. Bittersweet is the word that I would use with it. Yeah, I wasn't really a fan of Venom, but who they chose for the director for Venom 2, I am a fan of, so I will root on. Give us the name, Mr. Sony Pictures has, has just revealed that they've signed Andy Serkis, the, the acknowledged master of performance capture cinema. He's going to be the one who's directing this follow-up to that studio's October 2018 smash hit. One downside to this is, I don't know if you saw... In fact, it was a, a year ago this week that they Netflix announced that they had signed Andy Serkis to direct a performance capture version of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yes. That I was really looking forward to, but I've been hammering on Google since this news broke, and there's no word yet whether or not that project has been pushed back or... And that is kind of the thing about directors' careers, it seems, is they have to get uh, five plates spinning all at once so that four of them can fall off by the wayside because someone else loses interest and then they end up getting one uh, plate that's still spinning that ends up being the movie they make. And then after that movie's done, they'll, go, they'll look at that plate and go, is it completely broken or can I try and spin that again for another uh, year or two and see if we can get that up and going again? Yeah, so, they, <laughs> yeah, the, the Animal Farm one's like, eh, it may have fallen off the, the stick for yeah, a moment. It's definitely the Guillermo del Toro or James Gunn playbook these days. Yeah, exactly. Oh, a little more info about the Venom sequel. The most recent Planet of the Apes film, Andy Serkis worked with Woody Harrelson. I know the end of the original Venom suggested that Carnage might be the villain. So that this, I think that's a welcome yeah. sign. Also, uh, Kelly Marcel, who did such a nice job with the screenplay for Disney's Saving Mr. Banks back in 2013, she'll be back to write the screenplay for Venom. Uh, Kelly was one of the three writers who were credited with putting together the script for the original Venom. And again, while we're talking about Marvel movies that will be out next fall, I guess we should be talking about The Eternals, which is slated to mm -hmm. be released to theaters on November 6th of the next year, which is just five weeks after Venom 2 arrives in theaters. And just today, just before Aaron and I sat down, Deadline.com reported that Gemma Chan of Crazy Rich Asians and Mary Queen of Scots is in talks to join the cast of this Chloe Zhao film. Chan previous played Minerva in Captain Marvel. She was the Kree sniper 
in Marvel's crew of superheroes. And nobody's sure quite now if she's going to be reprising Minerva in Marvel's Eternals or be playing an entirely different character. Uh, likewise, Irish actor Barry Cogan, who's probably best known for his work in Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, is also supposedly in discussions to join the cast of Marvel's Eternals. And they are cutting this awfully close. I mean, production of this cosmic comic book movie is supposed to get underway early next month to circle back to the story we were just talking about the love and thunder and shang chi and the legend of the ten rings shooting at fox studio australia it's worth noting that marvel's the eternals is primarily being shot at pinewood studios uk not the atlanta pinewoods and I, I want to believe you're a more benign take on this, Aaron, but <laughs> it's hard right. not to, to look at the fact that the next three Marvel movies, and if we add in Black Widow, which is also now shooting at Pinewoods in the UK after extensive location work in Norway and Budapest, that's four Marvel movies being shot overseas after 12 out of 22. Hey, there's also the factor that the, the it, it's entirely possible that the Atlanta studio is booked by another film production. Okay. Okay. All right. We're going to bury the needle in benevolent here. That's what's going on. They're booked. They, <laughs> I'm sorry. We'd love to do another Marvel movie, but... We've got the Fast and the Furious 26 to put out. There we go. Okay. Well, well now, speaking of films that Marvel Studios reportedly looking to soon get into production. Uh, remember, as Feige was finishing out his presentation at Comic-Con in San Diego last month, he said, oh, we ran out of time to talk about Fantastic Four and, and the X-Men. So when we get back from this break, Aaron is going to tell us all about how he thinks Power of X and House of X fits into the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Just for starters here, it's one thing to do a reboot or a rethink on a character, but what Marvel Comics is doing with the uh, House of X and, excuse me, Powers of Ten, not Powers of X. Correct. This is, for lack of a better term, a really ballsy choice. It is, and they've relaunched the X-Men, I want to say, four other times in the past. You had the Uncanny X-Men and Age of Apocalypse and uh, a couple other I can't think of off the top of my head, mm -hmm. but whatever. We're now at a new phase of X-Men, and the first book that came out a few weeks ago is House of X, and that is, I would say, the House of Xavier, it should be. Uh, and I'm, I'm also going to have to say that House of X takes place... 10 years in the future from today. We've got Charles Xavier who is walking about. He's wearing something that appears to look a lot like Cerebro permanently attached to his head and it covers his eyes. So only his nose and his mouth are, are visible. And it gives kind of a creepy vibe to Xavier all of a sudden. In the opening pages, we have several X-Men appear to be birthed out of some sort of pod, out of some sort of tree. That makes mm -hmm. no sense. We visit locations like Mars, the Moon, Washington, D.C., the Savage Land, which is one of my more favorite lands of the X-Men. And I kind of wish we got to, got to visit the Savage Land in the X-Men movies, but maybe in the future. And then they also take us to a new place called Krakoa. And Krakoa is going to be a, a focal point for a lot of reasons in this storyline. 
It is a small island just northeast of Australia. It is the home to mutant kind, and they offer amnesty to all mutants of Earth, and they export Krakoan flowers, which has many, many uses. And the funny thing is, this comic is very, very thick, and it's an info dump. You get to pages where it's just black and white, like dossiers that Xavier sends to mutants to let them know about what a mutant is, what the flower is, what kind of drug it can be turned into. So the Krakoan flowers can be turned into a drug that just extend the life of any human. Doesn't matter how sick you are, just adds five years to your life instantly. It can also cure any form of mental disorder or ailment, whether you've got a minor headache or schizophrenia, it can cure it. I mean, we're talking miracle drugs mm -hmm. here that save humanity. Now, if a mutant uses it, it has a different ability. Like it can be used as a gateway between two different locations. It's a flower. So if you plant this Krakoan flower on the moon and you plant one on earth, a mutant can use it to teleport from the moon to earth and vice versa. Very, very different than curing a headache. It also has a very negative use, which the people of Krakoa are not yet aware of. Hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's like a little mystery element that's kind of floating out there. So that kind of comes in one of Xavier's dossiers to, to mankind to let him know what's up. So what he wants, Xavier's new plan, we want world peace. Don't persecute any mutants for being different. You let them come to this island. They live in peace. They are free to do whatever they want. If they want to do drugs, if they want to commit murder, whatever, it's all good. Whatever you want. We just don't care. But you can't touch us on this island. And in return, we will give you this these drugs synthesized from our flowers that can extend your life and cure all of your ailments. What do you say? And he appoints Magneto as his ambassador to mankind. What can go wrong with this move? I say, what could possibly go wrong? Wow. <laughs> okay. So uh, a couple of other brief notes to kind of bring you up to speed. They tell you about Omega level mutants. That's a mutant who is so vastly powerful that they can't even measure the upper end of their ability. So for example, Jean Grey is an Omega level telepath, but she is not an Omega level telekinesis. So she's got the brain power to invade your mind higher than any other mutant on the planet but she can't levitate stuff better than any other mutant on the planet, mm. right? So you can see the difference yep. there. Oh, yeah, and then at the end, they give you the proper reading order of House of X and Powers of Ten issue by issue to get through this entire massive epic story that they're starting. Now, the writer says this could go on for 10 years in the comics. He's looking long-term, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then we'll jump now to Powers of Ten, and this is going to be a much more abbreviated version, but the actual nugget concept that's driving this book forward is just wonderful. Powers of 10 starts 10 years ago, and they're going to divide the story up into four different chunks. So you've got the present day timeline, which is year one, then it jumps forward 10 years, and then that's where House of X is taking place in the timeline. And then it jumps forward a hundred years and it tells a story there. And then it jumps forward a thousand years and tells a story there. And at the thousand year mark is when we find out that mutant kind and humanity have had one huge epic war and it did not come 
out as the two survivors at the end page had predicted it would. Mm. And then it shows a, a picture of, basically, it looked a lot like an Adam and Eve drawing, two naked, a man and a woman, naked, in a garden, covered by bushes. And it says, we can only hope that they never regain dominance over this planet ever again. So it looks like that the humans have been bombed back to the Stone Age, like we're almost Neanderthal level right now, and uh, mutants are alive and well a thousand years in the future, but the war still did not go as they had thought it would. Hmm. Powers of Ten is a book that's telling you uh, 10 years ago, today, 100 years from now in the future, and then a thousand years in the future from that. And you're getting a beginning of a story and an end of a story and bits of the middle of the story dosed out to you every issue. And then the House of X is the thing that's going to drive your everyday narrative forward that is the thrust for everything that happens in Powers of Ten. Very amazing little concept they've got there. With the comic book, great place for new readers to start reading, which is one of the reasons why they do this. Mm -hmm. the, the lore has become too complex. And by the way, that lore I just rattled off sounds way more complex than anything that's come out. But like I said, with those Xavier dossiers, they give you these info dumps where they get you caught up to speed really, really quick, really, really well. So you can handle all of that mythology that's, that they're going to throw at you in the, in the coming pages. So it is a wonderful entry point because they have all of the stuff laid out They've got maps of where everything exists, mm -hmm. and uh, they really do a, a good job of throwing you into the deep end, but you still feel like you're going to be able to swim through it, right? What I've been hearing, friends who have read it are excited not just for the possibilities of how this version of, of the X-Men will play into, say, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but they're also excited because in the last couple of pages of number one of, of House of X, the Fantastic Four, or at least Sue Storm and Mr. Fantastic come on the scene. That's what's intriguing about what Feige said, that, you know, we're not just getting a reboot of uh, Fantastic Four, we're also getting new X-Men movies, and it's hard not to look at these last couple of pages, and especially the potential the thing that they set up. Are we allowed yeah. to talk about that? Before we do, for any of the lesser uh, on, the, on the geek scale that don't mm -hmm. know, Fantastic Four is referred to as the first family mm -hmm. of Marvel. This is, as the way Marvel views it internally, the most important property they have to them emotionally, mm -hmm. it seems that they care about this family more than anything because it was the start of Marvel Comics, and therefore it deserves to be treated like a crown mm. jewel. So the fact that we could get a, a new version of the Fantastic Four, that this might be a gateway into that, is indeed very, very exciting. But for you know the casual MCU viewer, they may not know who the Fantastic Four is, and they may not know why they're so important to Marvel or why they're taking their sweet darn time with it, because they want to get it right. If you look at the Marvel timeline, we've got Fantastic Four was introduced in November of 1961, and literally less than two years later, we get our very first issue of the X-Men in September of 63. So these two are very, very early on properties, 
for Marvel. And the thing of what they're doing with House of X is it's not Magneto. Who is the character? No, it is Magneto who's the ambassador, right? Yeah, yeah. And he just basically says, time's Mm up. But that what he says to Sue and Mr. Fantastic, you know, as he's finishing up his conversation with them about their son, Franklin, to the effect of when he's ready, you know, that there's room for him on the island. For him to bring up Franklin, who you had just mentioned, the uh, Omega-level mutants. Uh, And Franklin, in theory, is the most powerful of all? I love the comparison. You know how the Silver Surfer is the, the Herald of Galactus? If you go into the mythology of Marvel, Galactus is Franklin's uh, herald, the eater of worlds. He's your herald? It's like, dear Lord. The character was introduced back in November of 1968, but it was in 1998 when they did the aging up of him. If this is the version of the X-Men that potentially Feige and company are sort of eyeballing, to sort of fold into the cinematic universe. And likewise, this is, you know, their way in to bring the Fantastic Four back because, you know, Franklin's such a, a powerful mutant. But wouldn't you have to do the Fantastic Four movie first and introduce those characters before you bring the X-Men to to this world? Or no, I think you could do it just the way that they've done it in the House of X comic, where you start telling the X-Men story and you get to the last panel and there's all of a sudden the Fantastic Four and the credits mm-hmm. roll. <laughs> you know, and the, everyone goes, what? Ha! Who? Ha! They lose mm-hmm. their minds. All the buzz is built in for your next movie, which will be Fantastic Four a year after mm-hmm. that. Right? I mean, it, it just works too well that way. If they wanted to go that way, first off, let's figure out if it's really what they would do. And and logically, it makes a lot Mm -hmm. of sense that Marvel sells comics to sell movie tickets and vice versa. They also sell movie tickets so that they can sell Mm -hmm. comic books. If the writer has already planned that this is going to be happening for the next 10 years of real world time, Mm -hmm. then if Marvel decides to bring the X-Men into the MCU, it's going to be happening while this comic narrative is still Mm -hmm. happening. Fox had a very long run at all things X-Men. It doesn't seem likely that Marvel would have any interest in rehashing old stories that have already been brought to you on film by a different movie mm-hmm. studio. So I, I don't really see them taking a third swing at Dark Phoenix now. It's it's just a tainted thing and they need to just leave it alone. Not wanting to rush into an X-Men related announcement for the MCU at Comic-Con. This allows for a year or two of the comic book storytelling to get going, see if it clicks with the fans. If it does, they have now a blueprint for their vision of the X-Men for the MCU. If fans hate it, Marvel can retcon and come up with a new game plan for the Mm -hmm. movies. Right, So taking your time is nothing but good right now, especially since you've got a brand new storyline that is so far being very well received by fans, but what if we get five or six issues in and we find out that we don't like the story where it goes and and we sour on it all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, you know, Marvel's going to do some course correcting if they need to. And then if you consider only the timelines of specific characters, Wolverine's been around since at least world war two, same thing for Mm -hmm. Magneto. So if that is indeed the case in the MCU, then we should already know about the existence of mutants by the time the Avengers have assembled. Mutants should be a thing by now because they've been around since the 60s or 70s publicly. 
So we can't kind of run with that theory in the MCU. Therefore, the mutant gene would either have to trigger from an event in the very, very near future, or mutants would have to come from the multiverse, or mutants from space. Like, those are the three options we have right now. So my bet is that Marvel's looking for an entry point for the X-Men into the MCU. House of X could be a brand new start to the X-Men, while Powers of Ten could be the overall story arc that a half a dozen Mm X-Men movies could take up time telling that that overall story. Kind of like how we had the Infinity Saga. Maybe this will be the Powers of Ten Saga, whatever. Feige does tend to treat the history of Marvel Comics as kind of a buffet. I mean, when they initially announced they were doing Captain America Civil War and everyone kind of lost their mind because those of us who read the book knew that this story didn't end particularly well for Captain America. But that's not the way it went in the films. And in fact, that that's honestly one of the, the sweeter touches of Endgame. That, that, you know, and in fact, I, I love that you picked up on that story structure. You know, the whole notion of Captain America, who's always put everyone else first. You know, decided to put himself first for once and, and got the dad to spend his life with Peggy. And we discussed coming out of Comic-Con that... They've got, you know, these five films and five, you know, limited series for Disney Plus coming and, you know, no real timeline yet established for when Fantastic Four or uh, X-Men or for that matter, Blade, when that comes to the canvas. I think you're right. I think they're going to sit back and see how these books are embraced and, you know, which are the... uh, the more compelling slash popular storylines and and in Feige tradition, cherry pick out this story thread, match it with that story thread, and manage to make something entirely new. The other thing to consider uh, during all of this juggling act that Marvel has going on with their film slate is the fact that when X-Men was a property of Fox and Fantastic Four was a property of Fox film-wise... Comic-wise, Marvel stopped putting out X-Men and Fantastic Four comics because they did not want to be a free publicity arm for films that they couldn't control. So it was just like, fine, we're done with those stories for like the next four or five years or or however long they put them on hiatus Mm -hmm. for. And that, as a result, means that a lot of fans who grew up reading comic books during that time period had absolutely no X-Men or Fantastic Four to get from that Mm. period. So they have to do a little bit of a reintroduction, which is also a great time for a little bit of a reimagining. Since they've been away a little bit, you can retool them a little bit more dramatically than if they had been around continuously uninterrupted that entire time. So yeah, I think now is the time that they're, they've retooled everybody dramatically and they're going to tell a wickedly fantastic story. They're going to see how it flies. And if, if, if it grows wings, they'll go, that's our new blueprint for the movies. Let's get to work on it. And if it doesn't, they're going to look back in the rear view mirror and go, what are some stories that Fox didn't tell film wise that we still have back there that we could do? Very cool. That cuts it, folks. I'm going to drive out and get myself a copy of it. So it's uh, House of X issue one. And is issue two dropped already or? Possibly. Uh, I'd have to check the calendar. But I I recently got a brand new comic book shop within three blocks 
of where I live. So life has changed for the very better. Very cool. Me. Very cool. And and Powers of Ten is is that out or pending? The first Powers of Ten is out. Yes. All right. Going to go chase those down, and hopefully by the next time Aaron and I record, I'll have I'll have I've done my homework, folks, and be be ready to chat with Aaron about this. But until Aaron and I do get together to record a new. Marvelous Disney. There's a number of shows here at Jimmy Lomita we'd love for you to listen to. We've got The Disney Dish with Lentesto. We've got Fine Tuning with Dude Taylor. We've got Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Zahir. We have The Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And if you could please head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our show, that would be incredibly helpful. If you get head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that helps keep the lights on. And beyond that, anything you want to add? Or For everyone that wants to shout in on what they think of House of X and Powers of Ten, if it sounds like a crazy good idea or not, uh, send us a message on Twitter at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. Look forward to chatting with you. All right. Well, thanks for listening, folks. And we'll be back soon with a brand new show. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.